Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm the only, I'm your host, who is the only Christian TikTok creator that's ever used a yo-yo in a video ever. <laughs> uh, and joining me today as my esteemed co-host and question askers that I miss are Zachary has never touched a yo-yo Cooper and the mm. salmon far farmer I've ever met, our good friend Whip. How you boys doing? Hello. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, brother. I'm I'm not a yo-yo master at all. Yeah, the, that that's not how people know you in <laughs> any way. Um, so, such an a, a random but fun thing about uh, Coop is most of, like most of the videos that he got kind of bigger on on TikTok was him spitting out apologetics while doing yo-yo tricks. Great. When I first when I first got started, I was like, I don't think I could do that, and I would just. I'd make fun little trick videos with maybe some like religious songs in the background and they kind of were like, eh. but then one day I just decided I'm going to talk about how AD means Anno Domini and I'm going to throw a yo-yo around and I'm just going to keep doing it until I get it right. <laughs> and it worked. Well, well, welcome back boys. Thank you for, for joining me to fill the little, the, the little, you know, I, I don't fill. Do you have a yo-yo story? Will? You know, a little. No, but, uh, uh, well, maybe, I guess, actually, technically, <laughs> the Smothers Brothers actually got their start as a side, like a small tent next to Billy Graham. It was a small, it was a yo-yo tent right next to <laughs> the Billy Graham revival. It's a yo-yo revival, really. It's how the Smothers Brothers got their start. Huh. Well... Let's I, I'm again, I'm stoked as every week about uh, speaking with our guest. Um, this is actually a return guest. So I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Um, last time our this guest was on, I had read one of his books. Now, I since that time, I've read eight more. So I, I know a little I've heard, I know a little bit more about his voice and his thoughts. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, this show is 100% brought to you by fans and patrons. So hit like subscribe, share the show with your friends. We've covered all sorts of topics. Uh, so share them with someone who might gain something from them. Um, also, if you want to support me, if you want to support the show, uh, you can go to Patreon for the occasional early episode, Zoom Hangout, and My Eternal Gratitude. So patreon.com slash themadones. Also, I when I was doing the art for this episode, I created a new design that I made for a shirt, which, which is the Slain Lamb from Revelation 5, which I can't talk enough about that that image, but we'll, we'll do that at another time. Um, but if you go to we are the mad slash store, you can get a shirt, you can get a mug. If you go to we are the mad slash Christmas, it'll take you directly to all our, all our Christmas stuff, but that's it. No more. I won't say any more about that. Uh, but joining us again tonight is a man who may somehow be more prolific than NT, right? Last time he pushed back against that, but I'm, I'm holding to my guns on this one. The dude writes a lot. Uh, he He's written the Chronicles of the Nephilim, the Chronicles of the Watchers, the Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and many, a lot of append appendices, as well as companion theological uh, books to go with these stories that he has written. Uh, he is writing in the, the about some of the most interesting things in the world to me and i'm glad to have him back uh please welcome to the show once again mr brian gadawa <laughs> hello, hello people thank you <laughs> i really I've, I've read eight more 
Brian. That's impressive, dude. I'm I really seriously, I'm like I'm honored actually. I'm honored. <laughs> I yeah, so what's funny is I think I read so yesterday I while I was I was working, I, I I'm able to read and listen, kind of go back and forth. And I read 75% of Caleb um vig, vigilant. Is that I can't I can't remember. Uh, yeah, that's a hard Allegiant? Uh, yeah. Vigilant. Vigilant. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> Joshua Valiant, Caleb Vigilant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, now I'm on. Uh, is there one? No. Jezebel's after that. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. And so I'm in. No. The middle no. Of David. David. No, I read after David. That. I guess it was yesterday where I read most of David. That's what I meant. David ascendant. Uh, but no, it's I. I want to say first off, I don't want to ruin the books for people who haven't read them. Uh, but when you um, brought in uh, Ittai the Gittite. That is one of my favorite characters because throughout that the the series up until that point, that was the question in my head is the question he was asking of David. So thank you for that character because cool. it answered a question I had in my head <laughs> about what you thought. So, um, like I said, he's good stuff. There you can find all of his books on Amazon. I think they're still all free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Um, yeah, I've been reading though, doing the reading portion for free, but they're also on Audible, and he reads all of them. He does all the voices, and if you didn't know how to pronounce stuff, uh, it's a good way to do it because you're you're going to be able to pronounce it, even though you may not be able to spell it. So that's that's an awesome awesome thing. Even though I I think I like the pronunciation of Baal better than Baal. Yeah, yeah, but they're both yeah. they both have scholarly uh, backgrounds. I actually just chose Baal because it's it's easier to say than Baal. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I've often wondered, like, should I have should I've gone with a Baal one because it is a unique that guttural yeah. sound, you know? <laughs> so, but once I had chosen it, by by the time I start reconsidering it, it's like it's too late. I've, I say Bale in like three or four of the novels, so it's like I got to keep going. So, but I have great respect for the pronunciation Baal. Yeah. Well, when Baal. the first person I heard say it like that was Tim Mackey who I love. And since then I've been like, I, I love that pronunciation. I shouldn't love the pronunciation of a, of a false God, but, but I, I do. I, I love that pronunciation. It just makes it, it's like when people will say the Satan rather than just yeah. Satan. I also, yeah. I also respect that. So it, it's yeah. minuscule nitpicky stuff, but I, you know, I just love that, that uh, precision, you know, I but I, 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 also, I, I remembered the word that I, I um, which I've now forgotten. I think it's the Theophorus. Those are the names because you you named one of your characters Laganalu after Anu because there are a lot of names that uh, characters are named after gods in some sense, like Elijah is, like Isra yeah. Israel is, all of that. And uh, I've now forgotten the word since I said it two seconds ago. Theophorus names, that's what they're called. I remembered huh. that word, so I'm happy about that. But we, I asked you to come back on the show because it's Christmas. So, Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, Christmas, a lot of people think it's pagan or uh, some other just consumerist holiday. But this time of the year is about the most epic instance of spiritual warfare that has ever existed on the face of the planet. And I thought, who better to talk about this moment in history uh than the guy who's written books about it and written about that spiritual warfare so uh, i know you have some some ideas of where to go and i think i think you're right i think we do need to maybe prime some people so they understand what we're talking about a little bit better but that's mm -hmm. what you, that's what you're here for because i respect the hell out of you and i want to i want to hear more above your thoughts sure well <clears throat> 
we talked a little bit about before the show about this. So, you know, who knows where we're going to end up because there's a lots of different um, rabbit trails that we can go down for sure. But I think that in terms of context of Christmas and, and what you bring up and, and how that subverts the, um, the watcher paradigm, at least to some degree, um, <clears throat> you know, we, uh, uh, all of us here have a, a basic, you know, understanding of the divine council. And I think that it, it, it certainly begins there, you know, because the classic passage, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God who are divine beings from heaven, uh, you know, see that the daughters of men are, you know, are beautiful and they take them as wives and they bore them children and they call them the, the Nephilim or the, um, the giants actually. But, and they are great men or warriors of renown. And, you know, the sort of the, there's different ways of interpreting that passage. And I don't think that, I don't think that just saying, coming at it from a strictly hyper-literalist, like, you know, it's just, it's, you know, without appreciating, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying, um, however one interprets that, and I, I think there's a basic truth to it that it's speaking somewhat factually, but it's it's given to us in the context, in a very specific theological context in that ancient world. And so I think, it, I think it's important to know that context because it helps sort of fill out the, the meaning of it. And what I mean by that is that, it, you know, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is there's the storyline, that theological thread is in other religions as well. You know, and um, the concept of these divine beings coming and mating with human women. You know, many people will say, oh, you know, that smacks of, that's obvious mythology because the Greeks have that with the gods. And, you know, and of course they do. And, and in fact, all ancient religions have some form of, the, of gods mating with humans, etc. And, you know, that's uh, to, to sort of see parallels <clears throat> as a proof of sort of, I don't know, common uh, borrowing or uh, um, sort of common fantasies, you know, common mythologies, etc. is, is, it's not just naive, it's actually ignorant and uneducated, you know, because yeah. while there are, while there are connections between cultures, and there, there is borrowing of images and concepts, the, uh, I think the polemical aspect is what's mostly missed. Yeah. And and, and I think the polemical aspect that's going on here is that, you know, and of course there's an ancient Mas Mesopotamian background to this as well, where they're the, um, they, the Mesopotamian mythology believed that they had these beings called the Apkalu, and the Apkalu were the divine wise ones. You know, they often had like fish, fish suits, men with fish suits on them. You know, you see the Assyrian uh, engravings and such. And, you know, they believe that the Apkalu were the wise ones who came down from heaven and, and gave wisdom to, to mankind, you know. And so this was a common motif, actually, that mankind got its wisdom from the, you know, the heavenly beings. And, yeah. and then, of course, these, some of these heavenly beings uh, mated, and you would get uh, mated with humans, and that's how you would get certain kingships like Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was considered, oddly enough, two-thirds 
I think it's two thirds human, yeah, two, one, yeah. one third God. I don't know how they mm. get that out, right? But, but nonetheless, that you know that that was a common motif as well that the gods or that the, you know, and Egypt, of course, as well, had uh, the concept that you know um, Pharaoh was the son of uh, Pharaoh was Horus on Earth, the son of you know um, Ra, son of Ra, you know, in, in heaven, and so this this concept is very common but the way the hebrews use it there's a polemical element to it and it's sort of like you know you you say that these wise ones came and gave wisdom to mankind but we say that they were angelic beings who were um who were wicked and they actually brought evil to mankind. And of course, then you have um, uh, extra canonical sources like the book of First Enoch that many of us do, um, you know, believe is, well, it, it certainly was a source of some of the New Testament writings. So, you know, it, I don't think it's scripture personally, but you know, it certainly is a, a worthy source, let's put it that way. And of course, there we taught, you know, we see how the Jewish understanding was certainly that the the apkalu <laughs> that came from heaven were actually demonic beings, and they were they were giving negative. Yeah, they did give some positive source to mankind, but it was largely negative. They taught mankind war and and fortification and all this kind of stuff, and and a lot of occultic stuff, right? Why? Because the Hebrew concept was very much polemical against the ancient concepts. So same thing with the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, the serpent in most, you know, in many of the ancient religions was more a, a positive character, you know, the eternal life of shedding the skin. Um, and, and, you know, they believed, again, that, that um, serpent brings wisdom. And the wisdom in Genesis, of course, that the serpent brings is a deception it's it's not it's really a you're going to be like god you're going to know good and evil and but 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 so doing it claiming that prerogative of god cuts you off from god and actually brings death and so the serpent is actually a symbol of of evil in a way in the ancient world he was not and in other words they're saying this wisdom that you think you're getting from the gods is actually deception and brings death so there's this polemic that's going on um, regardless of whether or not you believe it's, it really happened the way it said or not, you know, so this, this, this applies to any interpretation of that text. And so, um, and of course I, I, as an evangelical Christian, I believe, I believe that the text accurately depicts, um, uh, our prehistory Genesis and such, but it does so in a very literary way, which means it's not always hyper-literal like most people assume, you know? Well, right. what, exactly what it says is exactly the way it happened. No, no, there are ways of writing and telling stories in the ancient world to communicate concepts that don't need to be the literal scientific rendering that we, with our modern bias, misunderstand, okay? But I take it at face value and I, I, I seek for the meaning, right? So, you know, this, all this to say that, that, that um, this concept of, of, the the violation of the earthly heaven div, heavenly divide this violation of gods and men right universal concept in the bible it's clearly negative because you see that they they um 
these sons of God mating with humanity violates that separation. And what's interesting is this is a whole nother study. Looking through the creation account, one of the emphasis is separation. Mm -hmm. Separates light from darkness, separates Mm -hmm. land from the sea, separates the sky, right? Sky from the earth. So, and that's rooted in the holiness code, meaning creation is a kind of separation of things. It's it's building the binaries, which are now, of course, in the postmodern, postmodern um, woke world, uh, is literally attacking that directly. There are no binaries. It's the rejection of the binaries. But of course, part of the binary is also good and evil. And if there are no binaries, then there's no binary of good and evil either. And so all these things are linked, obviously. And so, so what we see happening is that um, they're saying that this violation is negative, whereas in most many religions, it's just, it's not good or evil, it's just simply is. And of course, there are these demigods created by this. And, um, and, and, and the Hebrews are saying, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a wrong thing, that's a bad thing. And in particular, this mating brings about progeny. The result of that, and what are the progeny? In Genesis 6, it says it's the Nephilim, and the word for Nephilim, Nephilim is a transliteration of the original language. The translators did not translate the word, and I think because, honestly, I think it's because of their bias. They were afraid that if they translated what it should be translated as, which is giants, that it would sound mythological (laughs) to people, so they didn't. They just call it Nephilim, which is what the word is in Hebrew, right? And, and Aramaic as well. But anyway, nevertheless, um, you know, that's a whole nother pathway of discussion. Can I just say, discussion. What's, what's funny about that is um, in the in the King James Version, you you, you see them mention uni- unicorns like eight or nine times, which is a hilarious thing that people try to use to like argue against the Bible. This is obviously mythological and fantastical. It's yeah. like, it's like, and so like them not translating the word Nephilim because they're worried about fantasy is hilarious because they used what is essentially a scientific word for rhinoceros <clears throat> at that point in history. And now they're being cla- they're claiming that it's that the Bible's fantastical because they use the word unicorn. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. And of course, there is a fantastical element of divine beings uh, you know, mating with humans and creating hybrid creatures. I grant that. In fact, it sounds fantastical to me. And, you know, um, yeah, it, it, it requires a faith commitment that uh, we don't always know, you know, we're, we're never always know, we have never know for sure about some things. And so, um, you know, I, I believe the text. So, but anyway, but, but what, what does that look like? That's a different picture. That's a different sort of uh, reality than what we may literally, literally see it as. But t- taking it face value, reading, um, theologically reading the meaning of the text and what that means. And of course, my, my novel series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, you know, I do that and I add a fantastical component to sort of stress the spiritual reality that I'm trying to, to communicate there. But so you have these hybrid creatures, you know, and... Um, and in the Hebrew mind that, you know, like in, like I said, Gilgamesh and Mesopotamia and such, they're usually demigods who have power and such. But in the Hebrew mind, they're actually cursed creatures 
because you're not supposed to violate the holiness that God does in his creation, the separation that he engages in. And the heavenly and the earthly flesh in particular, angelic flesh versus human flesh, angels are not just spirits flitting around. They are actual interdimensional beings that have flesh. They can eat, they can fornicate, right? And the Bible shows this stuff. And, and they're not the same as human flesh. Jude talks about how there's a difference between heavenly flesh and human flesh. I mean, uh, so the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and, yeah. and the, the strange flesh, like it's, it's there. That's in Jude where it just talks about the strange flesh. And so, um, meaning it's different flesh, different kinds of flesh. And, and even in Corinthians talks about, you know, Paul talks about the, the different heavenly bodies and, and earthly bodies have different glories so to speak, which is sort of different, rea different essential realities. Okay. And so what we're getting at here is, is that, uh, it's an evil concept and, um, and so you have these, these beings and their curse is then linked to the promised land and the promised land. Um, okay. So, so, so the Nephilim, the flood comes, after the Nephilim comes, God says, violence is upon all the land, not just humans, but it, the land is filled with violence. So I think that part of that violation brought, brought on the, the violence, and the book of Enoch talks about the giants and how violent they were and such. But uh, so those giants are, are not, they're bad people. But then God judges the earth, right? He kills He kills all, all beings in, in the story. And so um, that's part of the judgment on, on that violation. So you don't really see any more of that after the flood, any more of that sons of God coming and mating, right? Now, there's the hint of it, I think, in, in um, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and my my novels, the way I tell that, retell that story, I sort of take the tack that, that, you know, after the huge flood, the angels got it like, okay, we're not going to do this again. But then they started pushing the envelope and then they got burned like by fire, you know, which is the opposite. Anyway. Um, so, so these beings are, are bad. And where was I going with this? Um, oh, so they're, they're destroyed in the flood. And the next time you hear the word Nephilim, that word in the biblical text is in uh, Numbers. There's only two places, Genesis and Numbers. And it's when the spies go, they, they spy out the land, they say, yeah, the land is a land of giants. The, the Nephilim are there. Uh, or they say the Anakim are there. And the Anakim are giants. And I think this is Numbers 32, I, I think. I should uh, have my Bible open there. Um, so, uh, Numbers thirty-two. No, it's not. No, there's. Numbers. I know there's something about Jonathan uh, killing the brother of Goliath. I think in like Numbers twenty or twenty-one. I only know that because I searched for it today, because I was reading okay. this book by this guy, and I was like, I was like, where, where is that? I, I know that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is really bad because I should I should have this numbers. Numbers 13? 13. 13. I'm that 1330, something like that, right? Numbers 1332. 1332 through 30. That's why I had backwards. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so numbers 1332 around and 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 there's some. And then he says, We saw the Nephilim. They're the sons of Anak. 
And if you look, if you just study in the word of Anak in the Bible, you'll see the Anakim are their descendants. And multiple passages say they were giants. They were tall like the cedars. They were, you know, great, a great people, but tall and, and such. And, and these Anakim who are in the land of Israel, I'm sorry, not Israel, Canaan. Um, yeah. It says who come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in their sight. So, so, and it says that the land devours its inhabitants. So, so there's this sort of, you know, notion of it's not cannibalism per se, but certainly it's a very violent, um, destructive culture in Canaan, led by these giants, these Anakim, and um, and and that's the only other place. And so, what they're whatever you believe about the flood, the writer of Nef- of Numbers is saying these giants in the land are connected to the Nephilim who we all consider bad guys before the flood, right? Yeah. And so when God says to Harem, these, these, these Harem was, you know, the, the ban, meaning you are to go and kill the men, women, and children and animals of certain tribes. Well, those particular tribes were these giant tribes because at the end of Joshua, after Joshua was wiped, you know, people say, oh, you know, God was committing genocide in, 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 you know, in the Bible. He's ge- genocidal maniac. Well, it wasn't actually genocide. He wasn't killing everybody. They were actually killing specific tribes, and these tribes were connected to these giants, see? And in Joshua eleven twenty one, after it's all been done, it says Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country, that the hill country is where they wanted to settle, and of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction. That's the ban with their cities. So the Anakim were the specific targets of God, not everybody. And why? Why? Well, there was none Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and in Gath, uh, the Philistine cities. And so um, he didn't. He didn't do it. He didn't pull off the job fully. But the idea here is that that the text is showing us is is that these are cursed cursed beings because they're 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 the hybrid um, creatures and God wants to clean the land of that corruption to prepare for His people because His people are going to going to be in the land of Canaan, right? And so um, these Nephilim, then they're you know they're dead, and and most of them were obviously were dead at the flood. And how did the Nephilim come back if God killed everyone with the worldwide flood? Well, the flood might not be worldwide, or uh, even if it was, maybe there could have been one of the wives of the sons had some genetic connection to them, or what have you. Or there might have been some new uh, interbreeding between angels and humans that the Bible doesn't mention. You know. But nonetheless, they come from those original Nephilim. So I think that there's a genetic connection there. Anyway. One of the things you brought up, the, the polemical connection, and I just got done reading, I just got done going back through another study of Kings. And one of the things that was so wonderful is that it really does tie that together when you realize one of the kings of Syria that they have a problem with is Ben-Hadad. Well, what does Ben-Hadad's name mean? It means Ben, son of Hadad, one of the Syrian gods. Baal. So what we start seeing this connection 
through all of the enemies of Israel. And it's something that we see carry very much into the New Testament as well. So it just yeah. goes right back to God saying, hey, so all these people like Ben-Hadad, he claims to be from Ben-Hadad. And in yeah. the mystical worldview, it may well be. And, and that's the thing is that God is saying that that is no good. And that's, you know. Yeah. Now, there was a, you know, another ancient thing was that the kings, you know, claimed to be sons of the God, sons of the gods and such. So there was that theology. But I think that that's rooted in what may have actually really taken place. So, yes. so these kings are claiming to be those um, divine hybrids. But I think that's a just, I think that's probably more of a justification a, a mm. rationalization of their power, right? Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, it's rooted in the same concept, absolutely. And and so that's that's the context that we have. Um, so that when when Christ comes and Christ is born, what are they? What is what is the message? The message is the Son of God. Sons of God came and made with God. well, He's the Son of God by virgin birth, which means the deity himself impregnated the human woman, which is exactly the claim that they're making with these angels. But of course, God, it doesn't say God had sex with her because of course God, God is a spirit being. And so, but, and he, he, as creator, he could just impregnate her by saying, be impregnated with his own words. Right. So, so there is, um, there is a, a kind of a, maybe a mockery in some way and, and you know um but but in, i i think it's sort of a reverse mockery what what i mean by that is i think that these divine beings back in the ancient past sought to do the thing that they knew god would ultimately do but they sought to do it on their own and, and such whereas god actually brings about his unique generated son which we'll talk about that um his unique son of god through a human woman and in a way that, you know, that is the center point of history, the center point of theology of Christ for us as Christians. And that, that um, he is a hybrid. He is literally a hybrid of 100% man, 100% God. Now, the difference is that uh, the Nephilim were, you know, half human, half angelic. But according to Christian theology, understanding the New Testament correctly, I think, um, the incarnation of Jesus is no, he's 100% human and 100% God because he was uh, born of woman, but his seed was from the Father. And so um, what, what you have here is in the incarnation of Christ, he is a son of God. Now, theologically speaking, we believe Christ was preexistent as the son of God forever. And that's one thing I want to, what pathway I do want to go down is, isn't that the same word, Jesus, son of God? And what about these sons of God, right? Where's the connection there? We'll talk about that, the, the sons of God and the divine counsel, and then how Jesus is part of that. But nevertheless, um, you know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world. He gives only begotten son. The the Greek there is, is uh, or the English translation is not very good. Um, the more recent scholarship has come to acknowledge that what it's saying there is not that he's the only son of God, it's saying he's the unique son of God, meaning he's unlike others, right? And so... Just as an interjection, because sure. Isaac is also given that term, and Isaac is not the mm -hmm. only begotten son of Abraham. Yes, and what's Hebrews, interesting 
Yeah. Yes. Hebrews so what's says interesting that. is that it's as if the Nephilim made the same mistake that Abraham made. The, <laughs> Nephil, the, the angels tried to do Abraham. Abraham made the same mistake that they made yeah. when he tried, when he fathered Ishmael of his own flesh. Yeah, certainly so that, that represents the same concept of him trying to accomplish his own, trying to accomplish God's purposes through his own means. Absolutely, mm -hmm. sure. So there's there's that conceptual connection, you know. Um, but but now we have to say, well, let's go back to the beginning because, um, or and maybe before we do, there might be something more that one of you guys might want to talk about that. But that's where this thing comes in with. Um, how the incarnation uniquely begins to address the uh the watcher paradigm or uh or the divine council which is a whole nother thread that we will will get to address but that's sort of the setup for the incarnation and, and who jesus is what i think is really fascinating and you know reading your books has kind of helped me think about this a little bit more is you see throughout uh history you see it in egypt and then you see uh, God's complete decimation of the gods of Egypt, the judgment of the gods of Egypt, and but you you keep you see that there, you see it, it throughout history. It becomes the divine right of kings. You have all these different uh, people who claimed essentially to be a demigod in order to be a king or a mighty man or whatever. And so there's this paradigm that's laid down by God's enemies that God then goes, oh, I'm going to subvert that. I've got that, and I'm going to. I'm. I, I, you're right. But you can't do it. I can, and I love that. Yeah, I love that subversion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but in a very real sense, you know, um, in a sense, I almost think like theirs is the pre-perversion. Like they could, they know what God's going to do to a certain degree. They don't know everything, right? But and and they try to to get the jump on God and do it do it their way, kind of yeah. like that Isaac and and you know Ishmael thing where. Ishmael is is the son of Abraham by virtue of Abraham trying to accomplish what God wants to do his way. You know what I mean? Like, even though he knows to a certain degree God's going to give him, God promises what he's going to do, but Isaac or Abraham doesn't fully understand, so he thinks he has to do it his way. Well, that's where I think that in a way, uh, outside of time and space, outside of our reality, it's reversed, really um, it the perversion or the um, the mockery is in the 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 angels seeking to do beforehand in order to mess up God's plans what they knew God was going to do that's kind of how I see it so in a way God's not really using something that they came up with but rather they knew it was going to happen and they twisted it to try to pervert it beforehand and there's a whole other component there too of with uh, what I call the War of the Seed in my Chronicles of the Nephilim, where I do think too that that because you know because of the Proto Evangelion uh, in Genesis three fifteen that you know the seed of the serpent will be at war with the seed of the woman, and he will bring a seed who an individual seed an individual person who will strike the head of the serpent, and the serpent will uh, strike his heel. And so that's the first messianic promise. So in a sense, they knew something of what was going to take place. And so they sought to destroy that seed by corrupting it. And I think that's part of the corruption that's going on with the Nephilim. He's like, okay, if you're going to do this, then we're going to try to corrupt human, human seed so that Messiah can't be born to be the pure, pure uh, 
deity that you want him to be, you know, and we're going to, we're going to be our own deities and create our own hybrids and this kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm real messy, messy <laughs> sort of thing going on there. But so, so, so what does this mean? Jesus is the son of God. And it sounds similar to this phrase I mentioned, Genesis six sons of God. Is there a connection going on there? Well, first of all, you know, and, and maybe you've talked about this before, I think, or we certainly have, but um, the concept of the divine council, the sons of God, let's just address that um, off the top here, that, that sons of God in the Bible is a very specific technical term. There are times where God uses the word children of God or you're my son as a metaphor. Sure, and that's used a lot, but an actual phrase, B'nai Ha Elohim or B'nai Elohim or B'nai Elohim, <clears throat> this, or sons of the most high is another different way of saying the same thing. But it's this technical term that, that, that it's connected to. It's not just saying, oh, you're, you're my son. Like there's a famous passage where Israel is called, is, you know, in Hosea 11, God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. A lot of people say, oh, see, Israel was the son of God. No, actually, that's not. He's using sonship as a metaphor, surely, but he doesn't say son of God very specifically, I think, because you do a study on it, you see that the concepts or the technical term son of God, sons of God or son of God is a very different thing than, than the metaphor son. So uh, another case is, is Adam. In the, only, you know, the only other person that's called a son of God is Adam. In Luke 3, 38, Adam is called the son of God. And so what does that mean? Is that the same thing as Jesus? How is that different? I think what that means is the concept son of God is, means if you do the study on it, it basically means a direct creation or begetting of God. In other words, all of us are, or all of biological beings, but all of humanity is beget, begotten through, uh, you know, the, 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 humans, the sexual intercourse of, of two, you know, human beings, right? Seed and egg, etc. But the concept of son of God is something that, that, that is a direct connection to God directly. Adam was created directly from God. He didn't, he wasn't birthed through a mother. So this notion of being birthed through a human mother and having a human father seed, right? That's, that is uh, normal birth, but Son of God is a unique direct creation or begetting of God. So when you read these sons of God in heaven, who are they? You look in other passages throughout the Bible, you see such as um, uh, what you're going to see is these sons of God are divine beings. We sometimes use the word angels now, but I think angels is a very weak term because it's a generic term that means many different things. And I don't think it's the best thing to call them. Um, sons of God are God's divine heavenly host who surround him on his throne slash court and they give him divine counsel. They give him advice or suggestions on what to do. This is how the text presents it. Um, or they worship him and glorify him, right? And they do things that he tells them to do. So some of these passages where we get this from is Job 1 and 2. Uh, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan also came amongst them, you know, and, and that was where Satan goes, Hey, have you considered Job, you know, yeah, he'll curse you and all this kind of stuff. Well, the pre presentation there is these, these heavenly beings, these sons of God are somehow around God's divine counsel. 
Another uh, famous passage is, um, for those who know, is Malachi, First uh, Kings 22. And that's where Micaiah talks of talking to King Ahab. And he talks about the scene he sees in heaven. And the scene is the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him. Now, uh, what is host of heaven? Well, God is, host is basically many beings, you know. So um, they were sitting on his right hand and his left. And God says, who will entice Ahab? And send a deceiving spirit and a spirit says i'll entice him and god says okay go do that put a, and god puts a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets so this concept is they're around his throne they're they're giving advice etc etc and then uh sons of god i mentioned earlier that son uh sons of the most high is another phrase and the reason why i use that is because psalm 82 is a very powerful passage where it describes this divine counsel that we're already talking about. Psalm 82, verse, the whole chapter, just read it. It's real powerful. God mm. has taken his place in the divine counsel. Okay, so that's up in heaven. It, translation is assembly of L. Uh, L is a word for the f creator God. In the midst of the gods, Yahweh holds judgment. So these divine beings are called sons of God, Further down the passage, it says, I called you, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. So he's talking to these beings around his throne. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. So he's telling them, you are supposed to rule with justice somehow. These heavenly beings rule with justice. And then he says, I said, you are God's sons of the most high. So this, I, what the text is showing us is that these sons of God, also called sons of the most high, are around his council. They give him wisdom. But also it says that God gave them, uh, or, or they're supposed to judge justly over humanity. What does that mean? Well, um, we'll get to that in a second. But I just want to make the point here that they are called gods. Yeah. The word Elohim. And now many evangelical Christians would have a hard time f accepting that because, give me a second here. Because of Islam? <laughs> I had to turn that heater off. No, I, said, um, I, I, I just, when you said that, I just quit because of Islam. What? D just the, the influence of Islam in its uh, strict monotheism. Yeah. Kind of changed the face. Sure, but not just Islam. I mean, even just Christianity itself has become a sort of... Um, you know, uh, how can I say, a distorted understanding of what monotheism is in the Bible really is like, right. meaning there's only one God and then there's no other gods at all. Mm -hmm. And the Bible doesn't talk that way. And so we have to use the biblical language. There are other gods. What does that mean? Isn't that, is that polytheism? No, no. What it means is the word gods is Elohim. And we have to understand that, do a study on Elohim and you see, oh, oh, hold on. Sorry about that. No worries. So the word Elohim is actually um, a... An ontological term, right? It's an ontological term of beings who dwell in that spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's used of a dead a person of like, for instance, Samuel's brought up from Hades and he's called an Elohim, right? And and sometimes these angel, angelic beings or divine beings, heavenly host, are called uh, Elohim. And God is called Elohim. God is called the Elohim of Elohim, the God of gods, right? Which means God is, God 
all of these are spiritual beings, but God is the supreme being, and there's no one like him, and he's the only creator. And so the way the Bible talks is not quite the way modern evangelical understands, but it doesn't mean it's polytheism. It's that, it's, that's the bottom line, right? So we've got these connections going on. And, um, but where, what is this justice and judging? How are these beings judging over humanity? Well, you know, you go back into Deuteronomy 32 and you read that and you get this, you know, f amazing passage about Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. When the Most High, there it is again, that word Most High, gave to the nations their inheritance. He's talking about Gentiles there. When he divided mankind, ah, he's talking about Babel. So when God divided mankind at Babel, he gave their inheritance. What does that mean? The Gentile nations are described in Genesis 10. Um, the concept there is that, uh, well, well, I'll finish the text. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion, his heritage is Jacob, right? So what's going on here? I'm going to desert the rest of that. Um, delete the rest of that. So um, what's going on here is that there's a allotment, meaning God is saying, after the Tower of Babel, you're so wicked, I'm going to give you over to these God, false gods that you worship, right? Because he destroyed the earth, and then they started worshiping false gods. They built towers to the heaven the ziggurat, which was a, a, a tower of the gods, and they thought they would connect with the gods that way. So they continued to worship idols. So God said, okay, I'm going to give you over to them. And he's going to say, I'm going to have my allotted people are Israel or Jacob, and their land's going to be, the territory I'm going to give them is going to be what I give them. But I'm going to give these other nations, they're going to have their own borders and territories, right, nations, and the Gentile nations are going to be under the allotment of the sons of God. What does that mean? Well, at that point in time, their understanding of the sons of God were, you know, these are fallen beings, not all of them, but the, they're, they're, they've fallen from heaven, just like the ones in Genesis 6. They come down from earth, they violate God's heavenly divide, um, heavenly divide of earth and heaven. Jude says that those defiant angels were were imprisoned in the earth, right? Whatever that means, they're imprisoned. Okay, so, so because of their violation, God imprisoned those angels. So evidently, it didn't stop. And it didn't stop them. And so these, these sons of God, there's still some rebellious sons of God around. And God says, okay, mankind, you're going to be under their authority. You Gentile nations are going to be under their dominance. They're going to be ruling over you. So now we have this concept of that is in all ancient religions and certainly in the Near East, ancient Near East, and certainly in the Bible, that there is a link between heaven and earth, the earthly authorities, kings, nations, cities, they, are, they have authorities over them, spiritual authorities, and they, they are these sons of God, right? And so, um, but they're Gentile nations and they're rebellious, so... Um, Somehow, in some way, these, these sons of God who are supposed to be over these Gentile nations did not carry out um, their responsibilities before God, according to Psalm 82 that we just read, right? Does that mean were they good and then they fell, or were they always evil? That's a whole other debate. The point is what the text is saying, they weren't just rulers over those, earth, those earthly rulers. And so what you have in history is these Gentile nations who hate God and they have their, God, you know, their, um, their fallen watchers 
Daniel 4 calls them watchers, right? There are watchers, watchers over the nations. The prince of Persia in Daniel, uh, what is that? Is that, that's not four. I think it's, I always forget this one. I think it's Daniel 11. The prince of Persia and the prince of Greece are defined as spiritual princes over nations. Mm -hmm. And those are nations are at battle with Michael, the prince of Israel. This is all in Daniel, right? So these princes over the nations are the watchers over the nations. And this is where all this stuff is, is, is bubbling, bubbling up. And this is why sons of God are very specific divine beings given these kinds of authority. And God says, I will be the, the watcher over Israel, essentially, right? And so when Jesus comes, let's see if I've, have I addressed everything about that that needs to be addressed? I just want to say one thing uh, that's just funny is there is a popular creator on TikTok who I won't name um, who uh, some of his stuff is really good, but he brought he, he 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 took on the Deuteronomy 32 worldview and he said um, he was like, I'll, you know, he was arguing with someone. He said, I'll grant it to you that in the Bible, every time they use the word sons of God, it's not just uh, it, it, the only the, they always that always refers to spiritual beings. He goes, except this one time. And it's like, how? How do you figure? Is just what, one time that the, when the the allotment? Oh, the, the allotment. It's the line of Seth. Yeah, like yeah. he's like, this is the one time it doesn't mean that. And yeah. I'm like, the NASB, the NASB translation tries that trickery. If you want to beat your head against the wall, read NASB Psalm 82, because it literally tries to say he stands in the assembly of the judges. It's like at no time does Elohim ever apply to a human being. Yes, yes. Just now they claim that. it does. People, there are some who will claim it does, and they'll use references to Exodus. Um, but uh, Michael Heiser has, has yeah. decimated these arguments pretty well on his website. Um, I think it's called moreunseenrealm.com or something like that, or under the unseen realm, you'll get more of. And he he talks about how these passages that in Exodus and such that refer to um, Elohim, and they think that they're referring to judges, are actually referring to God. <laughs> you know, like when you come before the judges, um, uh, and, and it calls them gods, right? It's like, no, actually it's saying you're coming before God. <laughs> God is there. The judge represents him, sure, but God is actually there. You're coming before God. He's, he is there, and so it's the, the word for Elohim is not re referenced to the human beings is a reference to Elohim himself, God being there, you know? So yeah, there are answers to, to all these doubts, but you know, there are, you know, arguments and such, but, um, but, but here's the interesting thing, because when we get to Jesus, he kind of clarifies, are these sons of God, human judges, or are they divine beings? Now, my argument is they're divine beings who are also just judges, oh, not judges, they are rulers over these Gentile nations, so they have authority over them, right? And this is all going to be important for the gospel eventually, but, but um, John 10, where you know, Jesus is being accused of blasphemy, and they, they try to stone him, and Jesus says, you know, why are you trying to stone me? You know, it's, it's not for the good works you do, they said but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. John 10, right? Jesus answered them, is it not written in your own law? I said you are gods. 
if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent to the world, Jesus, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. I am the son of God. So people say, well, yeah, see, so uh, Jesus is saying that judges are called gods. No, actually he's not. Because if you think that, and Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, I said, you are gods, nevertheless, you shall die like sons of God, sons of the most high, right? I said, you are gods, sons of the most high or sons of God. And people say, well, so Jesus is just saying, yeah, you know, that, that humans are called gods. These are humans who are judges who are responsible for the people are representative of God. Therefore, they're called gods. That's not true. Because if you believe that's true, then what you're saying is Jesus is not claiming to be God in this passage. He's just claiming to be a human judge. Yeah. But the whole context is he's claiming to be God, and they're accusing him of it. And he's going, well, well doesn't your own text say this? So clearly Jesus is using Psalm 82 as deity to prove his deity. So the sons of God are considered divine beings according to Jesus. Jesus himself gives us the exegesis of that concept, sons of God. And uh, there's, of course, there's a lot more to this, but, um, and there's a lot more scriptures that talk about this, but that's the main concept. So what's the, what's the point then? You've got these sons of God who are, you know, they're, they're, what? They're, they're rulers over nations and, and such, and how, what's the point of that? Well, God is saying, look, um, Back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, he's like, if you're going to, this is Romans 1. See, Romans 1 says, man, you know, God gave the truth and man suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and he worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And he did all these evil things and wickedness and such. And, and this is God gave them over. And so that's what I think is happening in, in, in Babel and in Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy 32 and Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. What's happening is God's saying, okay, you're going to keep worshiping these idols. I'm going to give you over to them. They're going to be your gods. You're going to, they're going to be under, you're going to be under their authority. And I'm going to have one people for me in one land and everyone else are going to be Gentiles and they're all lost. And you're all going to be in bondage to them because, you know, they're, they're your authorities. This is why we have throughout the Bible, the concept that when, when there's an, a war on earth, there's a war in heaven. Why? Daniel 11 because uh, someone, someone researched that. I, I want to get that down. I don't, I'm not yeah. sure if it's Daniel 11. It might be Daniel 7. <clears throat> ah, I should have that down. Daniel 4 is the watchers, but the prince of Persia is Daniel 10, I think. I'm sorry. I think it's Daniel 10. And, and so... Yeah, Daniel 10. Daniel 10. Okay, so the prince of Persia... So there are... And the concept there is that when Persia... It's very clear that Daniel is about Israel is in bondage to Persia at this time, Persia. And so it's described as the prince of Persia is ruler over them. But the prince of Greece is battling with prince of Persia. Why? Because the, the next nation in Daniel's nations of Gentiles who are uh, beasts who are controlling Israel is Greece. So the prince of Greece is battling with the prince of Persia because historically Greece battled with Persia and took it over from them. And then they took over control of Israel after that. So the concept in Daniel 10 there is very clearly that these princes, watchers in Daniel 4 is another term for them maybe, but, but the idea is that there are these princes over the nations and when nations war, the princes in heaven are warring. 
There's many, many passages on that. If you want to, if you want to get more, get my book Psalm 82, where I go through all this, all these details, you know, as well as my book um, when when giants were upon the earth. That's even more detailed, but both of them together would be very helpful. But, Let me just throw this out here, real oh quick, sure, because you're talking about the prince of Persia and the prince of the, of Greece. Uh, I mean, I know the answer to this, but who is the prince over Israel? Uh, that's Israel Michael. That's Michael. And there are there are theologians who who and most of them agree that those princes are clearly spiritual princes. Um, now there, there's argument. Some Christians believe that M Michael is another word for Jesus because of certain other New Testament passages. I don't think that's true though, because I think they're they're separate. But yeah. but um, yeah. So Michael is the prince of Israel. Now he's in the stead. Now Yahweh says, "I will be there." You know. So how can that be? Well, God appoints. Um, uh, Judaism, uh, the Hebrew Bible, um, biblical Judaism, mm -hmm. not rabbinic. Biblical Judaism is very specifically uh, representative, which means rulers represent their people. Mm -hmm. Federal representation is the concept of the Bible, which means people are represented by their rulers, and that's why you must submit to them. But also, that's why if rulers are bad, people get punished because they represent the people. If the people are bad, the rulers get punished because they're represented by their rulers. So there's that deep, deep connection between rulers and, and those who they rule over. That's why there's also heavenly rulers who are connected to the earthly rulers. And, and so all the stuff that's going on is represent. You know, there's a good... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and I think it's, uh, and we'll, we'll definitely get into this later, but I did want to, you know, pr uh, preload this in, but, uh, you know, in, in the letter, the first letter of the Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about food sacrificed to idols. And I mean, he talks and there's also the verse about, you know, this is, you're, you're not waging war against people. It's against principalities and powers in, in the dark places. But, you know, in first Corinthians 10, 19 through 21, um, I love Paul. What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food sacrificed to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. I just want to throw that out there because these yeah. principalities, this prince, these princes, Paul talks about them. Yes. One, one thing I want to throw in just real quick, because I love this, that we're having this conversation right now, having just finished Kings. Because what do we see in Kings? We see Jeroboam building the high places to other gods. Yeah. Offering an alternative to biblical Judaism, like you just said. Didn't, offering, he, throw, didn't he put Ashram in the temple? He built an idol in the temple, but it was not a necessary. The text doesn't say it was an Ashram uh, idol, but the there was so well, much. I don't know if it was him, but there was, there was an Asherah in the temple for almost the entire time of the temple. Yeah. So we, we could see that from either Jeroboam well, no, Jeroboam did not run Jerusalem. No, he did. He did the Jeroboam did the the. Didn't he do the golden calves? Yes, he built golden yeah. calves. It was, it was later kings that built the ashram, and then they stayed in the temple for almost the whole four hundred years or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, they don't even mention the law for the entire time. The law is never brought. The word of God never brought up in Kings from David all the way to Josiah. When it comes wow. out again, it's like, oh wow! So for four hundred years, no one picked up the Bible and read it. And that's the thing is that you, they know they just the Levites, they memorized all of this. And the, what's so neat about what you're saying is you see that in Jeroboam, you see that spiritual rebellion. He's rebelling against the order of Yahweh, the order that Yahweh has set the distinction is, 
these specific uh, sacrifices in this specific place in Jerusalem, in the temple. And Jeroboam just threw it all out. He made idolatry. He made alternative everything. So Yeah, yeah. And I think what Paul writes is rooted in an Old Testament concept. Now, it's not, there's not a lot of passages, but there's enough to just point out that now it's, these, this is probably real. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 17, the same passage, but further down, he's talking about how Israel went and sacrificed to false gods. And he says, they sacrificed to demons that were not God, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently. And so what he's saying is the, you know, Asherah and Baal that, that the Israelites uh, sacrificed to were demons, right? So um, certainly I think the context is demonic. Uh, whether or not they're demons in the sense that we think of demons might be different, but nonetheless, they're demonic, real beings of some kind. Does that mean there's a one-to-one correspondence? There's a Baal God, demon, there's a Asherah demon. I don't know. I don't think the text says anything about those details. I don't think that it is a one-to-one correspondence. Some people do uh, because there's so, so, the problem is that there's so many gods. <laughs> like, right. you know, there are thousands in Egypt alone. There's hundreds in Canaan. So you're going to have this Millions problem. Okay. In, yeah. in India. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, if you want to sit and say, well, they're all actual real demons. No, I think God's making the point that there is demonic reality behind this this worship and uh what how that manifests itself who knows the way i do it in my novels is i say i say look there's a limited amount of watchers right and there's you know watchers and maybe some of their companions distinctly over nations and such and they probably maybe they even took on several disguises so to speak right you know pretended yeah. to be Baal or something um and, and, and certainly they just take on, because these gods are not real beings. And so the, if, they are, if, the, if the gods of the ancient world had a reality, a demonic reality behind them, it, it, this is speculation on my part, but it would, be, it would make sense that they might be these fallen watchers, since the fallen watchers are the bad guys who are given authority over the nation. So it would make sense that as spiritual beings, they would pretend to be all these gods to draw worship away from Yahweh. And that's sort of, the, that's one of the speculative theological principles of my, all my series, Chronicles of the Nephilim and Watchers and Apocalypse. And so, um, but I think it's still rooted in, in, in actual biblical texts, at least theologically. And that's why, that's why I wrote all these novels, because I found that so fascinating because, so what's going on here? What's the point? What are we saying? Is it just this, you know, battle of chaotic, you know, God is like the, the force, the good, the bad, dark side and all this kind of stuff. No, no. And, and the, what's going on is, is that God creates humanity. Humanity falls. He gives them. Um, now, I believe God sovereignly determines all things, but nevertheless, man is responsible and man has a, a freedom. It's not completely autonomous in the sense that he has powers that's apart from God, but God, uh, the man is still given a freedom and this freedom and responsibility, moral freedom to certainly, and, and when, when man falls and that, that fallenness affects us all, we all come from him, then that fallenness is universal, right? And so, um, oh, where was I going with this? Um, the fallenness of humanity. Um, so now the redemption oh, in the incarnation. Yeah, so 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 that fallenness never leaves him. God can redeem people, but 
what he says is, you know, he destroys the world because it gets so bad, starts over again, and it, mankind's sinful nature is still there, and it proves that it's not going to go away. They build the tower. They worship false gods again. So God gives them over. He says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Does this mean God made it up on the fly? No, I don't believe that. I think he's got everything planned out. But nonetheless, in terms of history, this is how it happened. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do is you, mankind is so fallen and they cannot save, them, and they cannot save themselves and they cannot, they cannot but um, worship false gods and defy me. Therefore, I'm going to give them over. They're going to be under the authority of these fallen spiritual beings and they're going to be in bondage to them. And we look at history and we see the ancient world was very much in bondage to you know, these gods and such. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to pull, I'm going to create my own people. He takes a pagan named Abraham. He says, I'm going to create my people. God does his will, regardless of what other people think or want. God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to, I'm going to create a people out of you. And they're going to be my people. Like these other watchers are over these nations. I'm going to have my own people. And he says, and one day you're going to bless all the nations on the earth. Well, how, if all the nations are Gentile nations under bondage to some other gods, how is that going to happen, right? How is it possible God promised you're going to bless all the nations on the earth when they're all fallen, they're all rebellious, right? So you can see that this is the, this is the, um, this is the inheritance that the Bible talks about. There's a lot about inheritance and allotment. In the ancient world, they had, and we still do today, right? But, but certainly it was, you know, a lot of their identity was rooted in the territories that they owned. And God says, I'm going to give Canaan, it's going to be called Israel, I'm going to give that to my people, I'm going to portion it out, allot it out. The other nations are allotted their territories and their gods. But I'm going to allot this, in, and I'm going to have a territory on earth for my people. And so it's this allotted inheritance. And so, um, but then what he says is, and this is where we get to Psalm 83 or 82. And um, we mentioned this already. God's in this divine council. He's got all these heavenly hosts, you know, and that's a whole nother thing. The word heavenly host is a, a concept in the Bible that means both the sun and the stars and the moons and God's divine beings who surround his throne. Well, how can that be? They're used for both at the same time. Well, in the ancient world, they likened those two together. Even, the, in, the, even in the Bible, um, stars are likened to gods or Elohim or you know, what we would call angels maybe or sons of God. So does that mean they believe that the stars literally were? It doesn't matter. They're, they're likened and they're used interchangeably um, because the stars and their shiningness were sort of certainly, I think, representative of their belief of the shining glory of these heavenly beings. And so uh, when you see the word heavenly host, you got to understand by the context what he's talking about. But, of course, the ancient world worshipped the stars and the, and the sun and the moon, and so those were gods in a way too. So God's saying, no, you know, the, the heavenly host are my divine beings. They're around my throne. So God has taken his place in the divine council, Psalm 82. In the midst of the God, he, God's, he holds judgment. He's judging, and he's judging them. Because remember how he said, you know, I, was, I gave you these people to rule over, but you didn't rule. The Gentile nations are fallen. Their rulers over them are fallen. You know, there's another passage that um, Psalm 89, same context, just to, this sort of helps fill it out a little bit. You know, he says, um, no, that's not the psalm I want to talk about. There's another passage that 
uh, reinforces what I'm talking about here, and it's this. It is... Here we go. Psalm... No, wrong passage. Sorry. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Um, here, here we go. Psalm 58. There's several others, but this is just a little bit more direct. Psalm 58, 1 and 2. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? This is God talking to the gods. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. So again, there are many more passages that reinforce this notion, the assembly of the holy ones. You know, it's a whole other thing to talk about. Holy ones is a term that's used of these divine beings. And, and um, so, 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 so getting back to the storyline, so God has these, these, these beings. In Psalm 82, he's, he's judging them, you know, and, and we don't know when this is going to happen yet, but this certainly is something that's going to happen. And he says, You've shown partiality, you give, you know, you don't give justice to the weak, you don't rescue the needy. And he says, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And if you do study in the in the Bible, and I do in my book, End Times Bible Prophecy, I talk about these the foundations of the earth being shaken is a common covenantal term. It's a term of covenant. Um, and it also represents these fall of powers. If if the fall of a nation Babylon was described as the foundations of the earth being shaken, the fall of angelic powers is described as the earth being shaken. So he's saying these heavenly powers, authorities over man, have been wicked and the covenant is broken. I said, you are gods. Nevertheless, you shall die like men. So he's going to judge them. He's going to judge them by killing these divine beings with death, which is something usually just reserved for humans, right? That's what he's saying. And then he says, well, when is this going to happen? The very last verse says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So there's this notion of some, this inheriting the nations. Where have we heard that before? Well, Psalm 2, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ooh, that's the Messiah, isn't it? I said, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your heritage, and you will rule them with a rod of iron. So he's referring to Messiah here. And he uses the term arise, which in the Greek version, it's aneste, which is the word that Paul uses to describe the resurrection of Christ. So Paul will take passages in the Old Testament that use that word arise related to God or Messiah, and he says that's the resurrection. All right. So he does that, for example, in... Romans 15, 12, look it up. Um, and he says when the Old Testament is using arise or raising up a standard, that's a reference to the resurrection. So this is a resurrecting God, who's Messiah, who will inherit the nations. Well, what does that mean? What that means is all that inheritance and allotment that God gave to these fallen sons of God, Messiah will take it away from them. He will disinherit them. Imagine it, imagine it like God gave them territorial deeds, deeds to land. And when Messiah comes, he's going to resurrect from the dead. And through his resurrection, he's going to take back the territorial deeds of all the nations. And... Um, 
and then let's see if I've got this down here. I just I I was just looking. It said at that. Romans fifteen twelve. Yeah, and I just read that. Uh, I I decided the New English t- translation to be the Net Bible will be the best for this. Uh, and again, Isaiah says, "The root of Jesse will come, and the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope." That's and then. It. And it's like, oh, this is a quotation from Isaiah. And I go to Isaiah because, yeah. of course, I have to because that's how my brain works. Uh, at that time, a root from Jesse will stand like a signal flag for the nations. Nations will look to him for guidance and his residence will be majestic. Yes. Now, there's a lot of different theological things to talk about there. But I'm oh, just yeah. making the point of realize that Paul uses this Old Testament. When the Old Testament says arise, it wasn't t- saying resurrection, but Paul right. is saying it was. And yep. so from that, from that pattern, I think it's very clear that this is Messianic, Psalm 82. And if we make that same connection, I think we're going to see that. But the inheritance of the nations, what I'm getting at is that's when Messiah disinherits all the others. So what do you see in the Old Testament? You see the nations are blinded, right? Jesus says the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. And they're in bondage, right? He who sins is in bondage to sin. The, and the concept of the Jews was, you're either a Jew, God's chosen people, or you're a sinner. There, there's no two, two you know, that, that was their understanding. The idea being that all the Gentile nations are in darkness. In fact, there's, a, I don't know the passage, but there's a passage that talks about Jesus will come, Messiah will come uh, in, the, um, in Galilee, you know, and, 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 uh, something about he will bring light to the darkness of the Gentiles, right? And so the idea there is that Gentiles are in darkness and in bondage to what? To their sin, but more importantly, to these uh, authorities over them who are their gods, their false gods. And so when Messiah comes, the concept is he will disinherit those. And now what does, you know, I don't, I don't have the passages I should, but... You know, what does Revelation say? Um, you know, people of every tribe and tongue and nation shall come to him, right? Go and preach the gospel to all, disciple all the nations. All those nations that were in bondage, because Jesus rose from the dead, he now has all authority and power on heaven and earth, meaning he took the authority that was once in the hands of those watchers he now has that authority. They don't have it anymore. They're disinherited. They have been judged because of his resurrection. In his resurrection, he judges them. He takes away those deeds. And now that's why you hear the gospel is always described as to every tribe and tongue and nation and people from all, Acts 2, men from all, tongue, from all over, the, you know, from all nation and different tongues and such are coming into the kingdom of God because they're no longer in bondage to those watchers to those territorial powers or whatever. So this is why when Paul talks about principalities and powers, that's a whole nother study, but it's not just, it's not earthly powers. Yeah, earthly powers are connected because the earthly power has heavenly powers. But if you read, you know, like Ephesians 5, it's very clear that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but heavenly powers, principalities of darkness. So you ask yourself, well, wait a minute. That was written, that was written by Paul after Christ resurrected and ascended. So doesn't that discount what you're saying? No, actually, it doesn't. It actually reinforces the notion that Paul wrote it in the time period of the 40-year generation before the fall of Jerusalem. And the fall of Jerusalem 
was the destruction of the temple. What was the temple? The temple was the incarnation of the old covenant. If the new covenant had come with the ascension, death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, but the old covenant wasn't, the old covenant temple wasn't destroyed for another 40 years, what you have is a, what I call a transition period between covenants. Yes, the new covenant has begun, but it is what, it's what the book of Revelation, uh, book of Hebrews actually talks about where it says, um, uh, in speaking, uh, Hebrews 8, 13, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. The old covenant is made obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It hasn't vanished yet. It's growing old. It's becoming obsolete, even though it's already obsolete. What does that mean? It means the new covenant made the old obsolete, but until the temple was destroyed, which is what Hebrews is all about, the temple, right? Until the earthly temple is destroyed, it's sort of, yeah, it's made obsolete, but it's still here, so it's becoming obsolete. And when it's destroyed is, is the final consummation of the kingdom of God brought in by Jesus Christ and that final consummation of his promises. And so, yes, during the time of, excuse me, during the time of Paul and Book of Acts and all that, we still have these watchers, they're still, or, or, you know, whatever, these territorial powers they're, that they're wrestling against even though they've been legally disinherited by Christ until the old covenant is, is destroyed. Why? Because the old covenant is the thing that the, um, that the powers are rooted in. So even though the new covenant is coming in, the old covenant's been done, done away spiritually. God is not a God of philosophy and abstract theology. He's a God of history. So there's two components. There's the spiritual and the heavenly and the earthly. So yes, the heavenly, Hebrews talks about the heavenly redemption has taken place and the kingdom has arrived, but, and the heavenly temple is, is there, but until the earthly temple is destroyed, there's still that residue of the old covenant. But when that earthly temple is destroyed, the old covenant is finally publicly and earthly, right? Certainly publicly um, uh, eliminated. Uh, that we can then say, okay, now it's completely done. In fact, in Hebrews, that same passage, um, or chapter 9, a little further on, he says, look, um, you know, it's talking about the, the Holy Spirit indicates verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place is not yet open. He's talking about heaven, the temple in heaven. And then he says, the first section, or if you read it in context, the first section means the earthly temple is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So 40 year time period where the ages are overlapping, the old age is dying out and it's going to be eliminated and the new age is, is blending in. And so it's a, it's a, you know, it's a historically, you know, volatile, confused mixture of covenants, so to speak, right? Because God operates historically and publicly, not just theologically and abstractly. So we have to be careful of of um, making absolutes about um, spiritual truths because there's both a public aspect as well as, or I like to say an earthly aspect as well as a heavenly because the New Testament talks a lot about earthly and heavenly, you know, that kind of thing. So, so Christ is reigning on the throne in heaven right now, you know, um, and his kingdom has, has been inaugurated and, and the, the consummation of that inauguration occurred at the destruction of the temple. So, and that's why I make the argument that 
you know, in my book, Psalm 82, that, that the, um, the resurrection of Christ, you know, uh, disinherits the watchers and their judgment is made sure at that point. But Jesus inherits the nation when the gospel goes forth. And once the gospel goes forth, no Gentiles are under the, the authority or powers of those watchers anymore. They can't be. Otherwise, the gospel wouldn't go forth, right? And so by the time that the, when the uh, old covenant temple is finally destroyed, the old company, the old covenant and everything is publicly done away with. And so we now have that, that, um, you know, the combination of heaven and earth, you know, consummation, inauguration and consummation, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really one of those, like I, I've not heard someone speak of, you know, the destruction of the temple in what, 80, 70 yeah. as a, as a end of the physical manifestation of the old covenant. Uh, that's yeah. actually super interesting. And I'm going to have to, yeah, that's a whole, that. yeah, I, 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 I didn't realize, you know, I've done so many podcasts. I forget which, what I talked about on which podcast with who. So I apologize <laughs> for that, but no, you're good, but that would be a whole nother discussion we can have on another, uh, that needs to be had because there's much delusion going well, on in the Christian world. And the lat what Christians read in the Bible as the last days, they th assume because of their own modern bias, the word last days, well, that must be the last days of earth, but it doesn't. It means the last days of the old covenant. And if you yeah. study in context, it's clearly what it means. Yeah, and that's a whole, whole, whole discussion. So one of the neat things that I picked up while you're talking is, um, you know, the it's so interesting that the ancient church is cued in on the types of things that you're talking about, hmm. because the because they didn't read uh, a Masoretic text Old Testament, they read a Septuagint Old Testament, and what does Septuagint thirty two eight say? It says he divided the nations according to the numbers of his angels, and so yeah. what you see is that the old so there's this idea of the Greek term theanthropos, the fully God, fully man, and you see that the ancient church didn't even. You modern readers, modern Christian readers, would be very shocked to see some of the ancient church say we will become gods. We're not; they're, they're saying we're going to be made the sons of God, and they believe that sanctification is the process of what theosis. We are becoming like Christ through Christ, and that's uh, and so it's so interesting to see. Excellent point you bring up because that's the next step in this discussion. We've been talking about sons of God. Um, we did at least. Uh, shallowly address the fact that, you know, Jesus is the, the only son of God. I mean, we, we address that, um, the unique son of God doesn't mean only son. Um, but even if it, but even if the words only son are there, as you mentioned as well, that Hebrews eleven seventeen says, Isaac was Abraham's only son when he wasn't Ishmael was so only son meant his unique son. Yeah. And so when it says Jesus is the unique son of God, he is one of the sons of God. But the, uh, of course, most Christians, oh, that's shocking. No, you're saying he's just, just like everyone else. He's not God. No, no, he is God. Here's the difference. Remember, the Elohim inhabit that spiritual realm. So sons of God are inhabitants of the spiritual realm. Jesus is one of the sons of God, but he's the unique son of God in that all the other sons of God are created. Jesus is not. He is the God himself, right? And remember the Trinity, I'm an Orthodox Trinitarian. So he is the unique son of God in that he's one of those sons of God, but he is God himself in the flesh. And, but what's the point of that? Here's the point, by him coming to earth, 
attaining our atonement, redemption, etc. The the New Testament, and this is this always this this was originally a problem with me because I thought the New Testament talks a lot about Christians are sons of God. Galatians three twenty six. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Right. Um, Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons son. of God. Right. And it says, we are adopted as sons. We are children of God. So the concept of sons and children are, are uh, equivalents or um, what's the word? Um, interchangeable, right, with sons of God. But the idea is you are sons of God. And is that, I, I, Brian, I thought you said that was a technical term that meant only meant those divine heavenly beings. Well, here's the point is... Um, Romans 8.18, I consider sufferings of this present time nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us at the revealing of the sons, sons of, God. of God. And then this glory has this shining nature to it, right? And uh, when Colossians 3.4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Look up glory. Glory is a twofold meaning. It means, you know, the glory of God is his majesty and his reputation and his fame, right? but it's often accompanied by literally or most it's symbolically but sometimes literally um shining right like and moses yeah exactly Mo, when moses was went before god and came out he shone and they had to hide their their eyes right so sometimes there's in the transfiguration right and so the bible says that we will be like him jesus right and um but then yes but wait our, the bible says we are already sons of god well, this is the now and the not yet concept, right? And so in a very real sense, we we are, uh, so, so, so the whole goal of it is, I think you're right that, that the, um, the Orthodox have something right here. And at mon, you know, typical evangelicals are fearful because it sounds odd, you know, it's deification. Well, when they say deification, they don't mean like we're gonna become gods like Mormons. Yeah, <laughs> Mormons they, try to twist that, by the way. Yeah, and, and they, well, try they to also cherry, they try to cherry pick that piece of the history, but it, yeah. it doesn't work. They but also wait, think that the, Elohim is a proper name for the Father of Jesus, mm -hmm. who is Jehovah, and His Father was. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. So, <laughs> what's but, the um, now and not yet concept? Right, it, it, Matthew twenty two thirty. For in the resurrection, they will be like angels in heaven. How are angels in heaven described? We go to there another tons of verses, right? At Sinai, God came forth shining with his angels, flaming with fire to present the, you know, to present the law. So angels in heaven are shining and glory glorified. Well, we will be glorified fully in the resurrection. We're not glor we're not um, shining now, are we? No, no. That's the now and the not yet. But in a very real sense, though, we are sons of God right here and now, and it's not yet appeared what we will be. So there's a transformation that the resurrection brings about, which would you know, be best said that our bodies will fully manifest what is already true in us in the heavenly realm, right? So the earthly realm will manifest the heavenly realm. There it is again. And so, uh, so there's a sense in which, this is why I believe that Daniel 12 says that there will be many who sleep in the dust, will wake to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. That's the glory element. And then he says, the wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and like the stars forever and ever. This shining like stars is this deification because we will become like God, not in the sense that we're gods or like him or anything like that. It's just we, 
we, we partake of the divine nature now, well then the transformation will be complete through the resurrection. We will have the resurrected body, which will be the divine nature like the sons of God have. So the goal of this all is God has wanted to build his family. That's why he uses the word sons, right? They're fam his family. It's not, just, it's not just a kingdom of power. It's also a family. And the sons of God concept is the people he created, his goal is to ultimately make them um, divine beings who worship him forever before his throne. So there is a divinity that will, that will come upon us. And this is not a divinity of, this is the divinity like the Orthodox talk about, all right? It's not we're, you know, we're gods and we can create things or anything like that, but it's certainly when you are in the presence of God and you've been transformed to be like the body of Christ, it says our bodies will become like his body, right? There's going to be something very different about us, but it's also divine. And the point is the divinity will be like the divinity of the sons of God. They're not God. They're not eternal or, you know, the son, they're not like the Trinity, but they are those who dwell in that realm and have the immortality and worship of God forever. So that's kind of the, the end of the story where we're getting to is that the sons of God that we are, that concept in the New Testament is, I believe it's connected to that sons of God in the Old Testament. We are to become those, those beings fully when our sin is sloughed off and we are resurrected. And, and we, but we're already, we are already have their essence or how shall we say it? We already have their identity as sons of God. It just hasn't been completed fully because our bodies still have sin in them. But when they are, you know, when they are resurrected and they are transformed, uh, then it will be complete. And we, and we will have that sense of divinity, uh, divine beings, right? Not, you know, not, we won't be Jesus in the literal sense, right? right. But, but anyway. Wait, are, already but not yet is one of my favorite concepts because it's actually a way I've described myself and how I view the world in a lot of ways. I mean, I think a lot of Christians do. Um, I don't, I don't know if they think of it quite the way I do or Zach does or, or Brian does. Um, but like, it's like, we're talking about, like, if we were talking about, uh, right now, I'm, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I am an active member sure. of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here but it's not yet in its fullness. We are not in the presence of God. The heaven and earth, heaven and earth have not been made one yet. So it's already, it's happening, but we're not, we're not to the end yet. So we're these, we're in, we're transitional beings at this point. It's That's a wonderful, how I've, I've understood oh, sorry. it. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful encouragement when we think about Paul talking about this, when he says, for he that began a good work in you will complete it before the second coming. So again, that's another reflection on that now, but not yet. It's a wonderful encouragement because we as Christians, we get so dour on ourselves every time we fall short. But when we fall short and we're dour, that's a wonderfully positive sign because it means we are marching away from the old man. We are already, you know, we've been made the sons of God through the son of God and we are becoming uh, more like him all the time. Very well put. This is why the concept, the biblical concept of the old man, new man is we, st we do still have the old man in us, but the old man is dead. Well, how, you know, this is the, the conundrum, but the theological truth is, is we still have sin in us. So that's referred to as an old man, but theologically speaking, heavenly speaking, that old man is dead and you have a new man and you can put that old man to death, even though he's already dead, he still fights to take, you know, it's the two dogs, but but the point of it is, is like, I like what you're saying because it, it emphasizes 
the the biblical concept is that um, our victory in this life, and I've done I've done a study on this, which sometimes I think I need to go back and redo it. But understanding there's I think there's a curriculum called the Sons of God or something like that, where it makes this point that our victory in this life is is achieved through practically realizing that whatever problems our issues are whether it's an addiction whether it's a sin whether it's a whatever you know your 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 issues that you're struggling with well what psychological theory do we follow to overcome them right well actually the biblical version is to understand that those sins those problems are part of the old man that's that's now dead your identity is new in christ doesn't mean you're living it out or experiencing it, but the identity you have, which is interesting because, uh, you know, today uh, identity is an idol, right? It's, it's yeah. identity of self-creation. And so I have a, you know, what's your gender identity, your sexual identity, right? So it's a very interesting how, they've, how they uh, worship false idols that are kind of rooted in truth. But, um, but our identity as the children of God and new men and, and we are cleansed and forgiven, etc. Um, that's the course through which we live out and experience that which is already spiritually true of us. And, and it's by recognizing my, this is not my identity, my identity is in Christ, my identity is in his perfection as a son of God, and, and therefore I don't need to be this lowly being that I that that is dominating me you know and so that's sort of the root of I think in my own life wherever I do have those victories is you know we 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 don't overcome by our hard efforts necessarily it life requires hard effort but we're not going to save ourselves or or redeem ourselves from our problems practically speaking obviously spiritually speaking only Christ can save us but even practically speaking we can't do it of our own own accord unless we recognize the spiritual truth that Christ has done for us. And that's, that's where we Mm. get that, that, that ability to overcome. Mm. We are sons of God, but yet it's not been revealed yet what we will be. And so you can, you can fight this addiction. You can fight this depression or whatever. Um, And that's the, that's the pathway I think that you need to take. Mm. That's, That's a beautiful word. That's so true. Well, I think that that's what's um, really cool about the already but not yet is, yeah. you know, we, we are these we are these uh, imperfect beings who are still dealing with our sin, who are still dealing with our our brokenness. But when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So we are covered and we're still growing and we're still becoming more like Christ. But when he looks yeah. at us, he sees his son. Yeah. Yeah, that. that's beautiful. And you know, I mean, there's the, there's an extreme of that. I I think there's extremes that are false in the church, right? Which is these these sort of dominionist sort of mentality of this, you know, yeah. you know, I'm a child of God, I'm a son of God, and I command it, and all this stuff. And it's like, well, they're taking one truthful element and they're idolizing it into a uh, a uh, uh, a victory based on the negation of the other side of the reality and a true hum true humble the the humble truth is yes we have that identity and victory in christ but it's done for us it's not something we command and um we still wrestle against the old man the the the, Mm. the old man the flesh is still a part of us and 
you will not have victory unless you have a, a humble recognition of that. If you deny that, you're going to go off into delusion. You know, just like the opposite side of those who just focus on woe is me and, you know, we are sinfuls and whatever, you know. God is wrathful, yeah, period. God's it's wrathful all wrath. And, Again, these are truthful things, but if you if you ignore ignore the fact that but we are children of God, you know, we are yeah. we are we are the king's kids, you know, all these right. phrases I've heard in the in, throughout my life, but but they're true. But in context, you have that proper balance. Then you have the humility, yet the victory. Yeah, well, it's like uh, one of my one of my close friends uh, became Christian, came to Christ a couple of years ago, and I was having a conversation with her. Uh, a year or so ago and she was like you know i'm 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 undeserving i'm unworthy i'm a sinner and i'm like quit claiming that stuff man he made you worthy he made you deserving yeah like what are you doing you you were you were not a sinner anymore you were you were claiming this on your life don't i mean i'm not doing the name your claiming thing i'm just saying right. the identities that you choose come to fruition a lot of There's, the things when people go too hard on that they forget that the worthiest price that heaven could pay was paid for you. Yeah. So you are worthy. You might not, you might be deserving of hell, <clears throat> but Christ paid for you. So, or, or I, as I would put it, you've been made worthy or declared worthy. You're not worthy, but you've been declared. That's the uh, um, reconciled, rec reckoned righteousness, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, well, and that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, he has given you the gift of righteousness and you yes. better hold on to that. Yeah, because and like you said, you're, you're holding on to the old stuff. That's yeah. no good. But when he sees you, he sees Christ, and that's like wow. Because I wouldn't have a chance if he didn't. Mm. You, you mentioned the word, the cloak of Christ's righteousness. I, I don't know the passages, but there are Bible passages that describe that, and we wear the cloak of Christ over us. And man, yeah, I, I need that because I wouldn't have a chance if I didn't. I so love there it is. That, that's why the sons of God and the divine council is not just an arbitrary theological construct for us to debate who love theology and getting into esoteric phenomena, but it actually is a theological thread that connects to our redemption as God's people right. and can be understood in a way that, that, that builds your relationship with God, you know? Mm. Wow. And what I love... Wow. is you know if you if you look at the the first century the second temple period and those who were waiting on the the messiah they saw a very different messiah coming their way yeah. they saw a a a, a full-grown man riding on the back of a white horse with a sword delivering them from rome when he was a baby born in a in a stable it's it's i mean like that's that's what's and i talked about this a little bit before the show that's what's so beautiful about this is um regardless of how much the enemy has tried to pervert the will of god and the plans of god and they they use sin they use darkness they use evil god like it talks about in in uh jo the story of joseph what God, what you intended for evil god used for good he subverts every evil move of his enemy to do good uh what's what's zach remind me of that verse i'm sure you know which verse i'm thinking of um mm. uh, gosh all the things just, together for the good yeah. of those who love god and are called according oh, to his yeah. purpose that's right and all things all things evil mm. all things yes are used by god mm. to create good and i just i love that <laughs> i think i think that's a great place to end because you know that's that's where this all leads to and 
what more can we possibly say? You know, nothing on that. But I do. That's my I hint do, that I'm done. <laughs> I do have some, I do have some questions for you though. Um, okay. Such as when David brought that bag to Saul. The way you wrote it, it wasn't just the the bride price that Saul had requested for his daughter Michal, the hundred foreskins. Uh, David brought two hundred, but in your writing, it wasn't just the the skins; it was a full castration. How big was that bag? You imagine because two hundred. <laughs> what was Saul holding on to? <laughs> Because after all, I, I figured, you know, I try to be consistent. Uh, if I come up with some different perspective, I still try to be um, consistent. My premise there was, well, the foreskins are on the, on the yeah. penises. So it's like, <laughs> right. it, it would well, be accurate to say he brought the foreskins, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, if, if I were having to do something so disgusting, I wouldn't have, want to do the surgical precision needed yeah. to, to just do that part. <laughs> Like here, let me just get this thing. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> on a dead person or something, you know. It's just yeah, you just, a warrior's just gonna that's the other reason why I did that. Cause I'm like, more realistically speaking, you know, that would and I was saying I brought a bag of foreskins would be the polite way of saying what was what it really consisted of. Can I just say I love that your choice when writing about David bringing it to Saul was at the dinner table just beautiful choice i just I, I i love that decision by the way everyone he's talking about the book david ascendant which is book seven i, I never chronicles in the flame i never once ever pictured him using like a cigar trimmer i mean he was a <laughs> warrior you know it's not gonna be like he's not pulling yeah. a straight razor out of his boot it's gonna be oh lord yeah yeah it'll be sharp but it'll mm. yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's just uh, I have like I just do want to say you know I've I've really enjoyed uh, listening to you read and reading myself your books. Um, like I said, uh, I won't I don't want to spoil things for people, but like uh, you you seem to get excited when I mentioned Itai the Gittite because that's that's a I was I loved him. He's one of my favorite characters. I was genuinely hoping you would hit that that uh, point that understanding in the story, and I was like, thank well, God you, you, you know. And, and the reason why I think you like it is the same reason why I like him was the more complex a character is, the more interesting they are. And when you have a character who's got a, um, uh, two strong competing, um, you know, whatever, values Natures or, or yeah. issues, you know, that they're struggling with, it's like, and of course, you know, the, the, the implication I draw is the possibility that he may be Nephilim of some kind yeah. and so can the nephilim be saved you know that's the whole question you know and i don't i didn't have like an absolute answer i i was i struggled through the story with it yeah. and my goal was to just address that complex issue uh and to draw to do so honestly and i think that's what interests you uh what interests well, people you know same thing with rahab you know the, my rahab character she's my favorite character in my whole series and her experience and her issues were very complex because she was a pagan who who ended up believing but it's like how did she get there you know yep. and yeah there the, there was also an you you played with the concept earlier on uh i want to say it was enoch primordial uh when you had uh what's his name Uya, one of the nephilim that was helping oh yeah uh, Aya and oya right oh yeah um you you played with that concept but there was it was a diversion you know so it was a he, he wasn't real and i was just like i wanted to hear what he thought that gummit so i was like waiting for it do you know i, I got the I name haya and oya or i can't remember exactly how you spell but those were actually based on actual names of 
of uh, Nephilim in the dead in some Dead Sea Scroll material. So that's I actually use names that I got from actual texts. Mm. That's kind of cool. Uh, so like we we hit the main points, and like I said, I do want uh, I'm, I'm I. What's so funny is now I know that people are reading your books as well. And so I can talk to them, but it was really funny was like the only person I have to talk about these books with is the author. So I'm going to send him a message. <laughs> oh my Lord. What the heck? What the heck? Oh. Love. And it's so like, what was the, uh, the Caleb vigilant, that book, I think that may be my favorite of the series. I think so far because I, the the Rahab storyline, Caleb, the way you and work Caleb, I love Caleb and, too. It's like he's so cool, you know. Man, uh, everyone should read these so that we can talk about them. And I'm not going oh spoiler. It's in the Bible, you know what something, happens. But something I was telling, something I was telling Brian just before we started, it was like I I've looked into some of your writings and I love. I was watching some of his awesome lectures. They're awesome. Check them out. The whole motivation for Kedawa. me to get a Kindle, com. For, yeah, for the whole motivation for me to get a Kindle is so I can check out Brian's writing. So they're so cool. If you're if you're a Bible nerd at all, and even if you're not, you should really check them out. I, I have Whip, a, I think okay, Whip look, has some good. Speaking questions. of which, that all my books, almost every one of my books is on uh, ebook, audiobook, and paperback. Some are also in hardcover on exclusively on Amazon because that's... links are in the description, by the way. Okay, great. And um, thank you. Yeah. And you can just go direct to Amazon because it's all exclusively there. Or if you go to my website, Godawa.com, that's my store on Godawa.com has uh, lectures and, and online courses that aren't on Amazon. Uh, but you can also find a lot of helpful information, like a lot of free articles. And also I, I cast most of my novels where I actually have little pictures and descriptions of characters that are kind of cool. And uh, some people don't want to see it, but I, I, I like searching for characters in like stock photos and stuff. And it's amazing what's available out there nowadays. And I find characters that I think embody the characters I'm thinking that I wrote. So you can find all kinds of helpful stuff on Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. Um, well, here's, here's my question. Uh, it's a big one. Um, and then we can have, we can let, wh let whip loose on all of the things that he's written down. Um, uh, in where do you think Mastema is now? Because I haven't gotten to the Jesus storyline yet. Uh, Mastema is one of the names of the Satan. Yes. Um, where do you think he is right now? Do you think he's bound? Yeah. Well, yeah. I I definitely think he's bound. The the but what does binding mean? And um, there are different ways of binding. Um, in Enoch. Uh, and even Jude, you know, talks about them being imprisoned and bound in, in the earth, like in Hades or in, in Tartarus, actually, which yeah. is the lowest part of Hades and such. The angels from the flood, right? Yeah, where the titans um, are. But that's not always what it means. And, and, and you have to always remember, whenever the Bible's talking about symbolically, and it is symbolic in, in Revelation 20, you you have to take it into context and in context it says what the binding is you know it says satan is bound that he may not deceive the nations so the binding is his inability to deceive the nations does that mean that he's still around sure why couldn't he be it's remember everything i said was the gospel we, we use the word gospel all the time. Gospel, gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the story, the good news of salvation through Messiah, through Christ, right? What is that? Well, I, I pretty much explained. 
the Christus Victor motif. There's many different ways of understanding the atonement, but yeah. and I accept, you know, substitutionary sacrifice and all that. But but the Christus Victor motif is his victory over the powers, right? And so, um, and that's what we've been talking about. And what that says is, um, uh, what did I say? The the nations were in bondage. The nations were in bondage to these watchers. But then Messiah Jesus, through his resurrection, he disinherited them, yep. took away. So so the Gentiles are no longer in bondage. They cannot be deceived by Satan like they were in the Old Testament when everyone else was going to hell and it's just Israel. But now God says, I save people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. No, so so mm. the binding of, I see that one possible, one, the strongest way of understanding that Satan is bound there is that the gospel, because of the gospel, because of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, Satan can no longer hold humankind, human beings in bondage under the old covenant of of watchers, right? That now um, he can't deceive the nations. So the nations can now come to Christ through the gospel, and that's what's happening. So and there's an awesome yeah. quote from Jesus about that because he's, when, when the strong man owns the house, his goods are secure. But when a stronger than he comes and binds him and plunders the house of his goods, so that's Christ and that's what Jesus was doing plundering the nations through the exactly. resurrection through the incarnation and the resurrection absolutely and so um so so by that now I, i'm not settled on all my beliefs on this you know because revelation 20 is very confusing and complex and no theologians agree and the smart ones will admit that yeah we really don't know because there's so many problems with every view but uh you know where i currently stand on that is it seems to me that 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 could still be going on now um, that Satan was bound at the beginning of Christ's ministry. And so Revelation 20, people talk about the millennium and all that. And basically that, that uh, Satan is bound now. And so to some, to some degree, Revelation 20 is already beginning and already happening in that sense um, uh, uh, with the gospel going forth. Now, did that occur recently? Well, I think it occurred in the New Testament. So, so the New Covenant—that's when that, be, that all that stuff began. So, what what happens after that? That's a whole other debate. Gotcha. But all binding right. doesn't binding always understand things in the context of what they're saying. Oh, well, one last thing. Um, this is going to sound weird, but I was sad when uh, Azazel was bound because that was such a great uh, antagonist. Yeah, yeah, he was like my Hans Land. What's a guy in uh, Glorious <laughs> Bastards? You yeah. know. He was oh, like, oh man. man, yeah. He was he was my favorite villain to write too because he was you know the, well, the Hannibal Lecter of the Watchers and all that. And I'm I'm now reading uh, Jezebel and I I see Ishtar is there and I'm like, what what's what's happening right now? Because last yeah. I checked, <laughs> yeah. The, so the the premise there is that you know don't, don't forget that I and I said this earlier too that my premise is that there aren't there isn't a one to one correspondence right. and they're deceiving they're playing characters so. Yeah. The bail of one time eras doesn't have to be the bail of the next era, time era, you know. And sometimes they may be right if they're not been bound in prison, but but uh, they're playing characters. So um, someone takes when 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 you know Ashtart is is bound or whatever, um, someone will take her place. All I'm human, saying is my hopes got high because I was like, is is my favorite villain back? And I, I I'm like, I know she's bound or he she. I no. love. 
I love the underpinnings of that choice. Yeah. By the way. No, I wanted to stay true to the concept of Enoch, at least, you yeah. know, until the judgment. However, if you read my series, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, <laughs> that is where I believe she's released. So, ooh, <laughs> wait, I will. When did that happen, or is that happening in the future? You'll have to read my series to find out. But uh, it, Chronicles of the Apocalypse is a standalone series. It's about the origin story of the Book of Revelation. So I'm telling the story of um, Nero persecuting the Christians, Paul and 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 Peter being um, martyred all that stuff going on around the 60s that leads to the Jewish revolt and the destruction of the temple. And, and at that time, Paul, uh, John is writing Book of Revelation. And yes, there are different theories of when it was written, and um, I believe it was written around the 60s. So, um, and there's lots of evidence for that. Um, most Christians just like gobble up whatever they're told and they don't look at all the varying scholarly arguments for things and they don't realize that you know, nobody knows for sure, but but there's plenty of great arguments that it was written in the 60s, not in the time of Domitian later on. But my point was, is I'm telling that story of like, well, what would it be like in that time period when he's writing it? And don't forget, it's apocalyptic. So just like Daniel, it's like he's writing what's going to happen, but they're being persecuted. So they're, he's writing in code language. It's yeah. a so contemporary that, meaning. Yeah. And so, also a long range meaning. Right. And so... So what would what does that mean? Well, that probably means my fictional story is Nero hears about this subversive insurrection document. So he sends a guy out to track it down. And the Christians are like cutting it up and sending it to different churches and stuff and trying to keep it hidden, these letters, you know, and which is revelation. And um, so that's sort of the premise of 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 my explanation of how might the Jews of the first century understood revelation at that time. And uh, so it's a definitely a, a different take. Like it's nothing you've ever read before, actually. Um, not it's not theologically new, but it's certainly dramatically new in terms of no one's written novels like this. So it's, but but so it's not uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. Stuff. No, <laughs> no. I like uh, to tell people it's the you you read about how people think about Revelation, how it's going to happen. Well, this is the origin story of the you know so. Let's look at the story of when John wrote it. And that, I'll just leave it at that. And Because you know what? You don't have to agree with my eschatology to enjoy the book. I've got many people who said, you know, I, I don't agree with your theology, but I really like the books. They're great reading. And you'll learn a lot about biblical prophecy because I communicate a lot of how the ancient Jews understood prophecy. And you'll learn a lot reading and a lot of history because it's a time period that most Christians, many Christians don't know much about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. It's very crucial to Jewish theology and to Christian theology. And, and many Christians don't know much about it. So I, I want to bring a lot of history into the package as well. And so hopefully it does a good job. All right, Whip, what you got? Okay. Uh, what's the Opkalu? Are those the things? Is the, did I say that right? From yes, you the did. Sumerian tablets. Okay. <laughs> so, Opkalu. so and you called them. You mentioned. Uh, you mentioned fish heads, maybe. No, uh, men in fish suits. Men in fish suits, right? Okay, and I was going, and that's where I was going to take that. Like, uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think the fish suits were maybe like, um, like a, I don't know, like a, like a, like an astro, like a spacesuit? A spacesuit oh. would be the word I'm thinking of, yeah. and also. Um, the relation in those Sumerian tablets with the purses 
to the same dudes with the purses found all over on all the monoliths on uh, many of the monoliths around the world. And then um, you mentioned also the serpent. You mentioned like this all kind of right around the same time. That's why I wrote it close. So you mentioned the serpent change in Judaism um, prior, like prior, it was it was like wisdom. It was connected to the earth. It was nature. And then flip gets script. And all of a sudden, this thing is just evil, right? Like you just better watch out. Um, and then so like, what do you think about that? Like, um, like then all of a sudden being connected to that wisdom in some way is taking away your connection to God. Um, and then like, why do you think that change in the symbology happened? And do you see parallels to that in the modern day? So that's like my big one. Yeah. <laughs> so all so they remember is Apkalu. So Apkalu, okay, we'll start there. there's a great article by Anus. Um, I can't remember his name. I'm, I'm, his last name is Anus, A-N-N-U-S. And you can, you can find any of his articles probably online somewhere. But Spell it right. He, it's, that is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to find it because it is a crucial article for those who want to learn about this stuff. It's one of the most important articles. You know, Michael Heiser says you have to know this material if you're going to talk about Amar the Anus. Amar Anus, yeah. On the origin and it's of called Watchers. On the Origin of the Watchers, a comparative study. And you can probably find it for free. Um, it's on my website. I know that. So Good talk. He roots a lot of that in the Mesopotamian understanding of the Watchers are rooted in the Apkalu of the Mesopotamia. And the Apkalu were these wise ones, you know, that heavenly heavenly origin and they brought the wisdom to man and um and Prometheus. They, yeah yeah so um and there's a lot more to that that i mean i don't know as much as others do on that but um so so that that's the concept there and and all a lot of i think most ancient near eastern uh, religions have that concept of given knowledge from the gods you know yeah. to some degree and so this is the polemical nature of because you know moses was raised in egypt and he was educated so he learned i mean he was shortly after hammurabi so he mm -hmm. and they tr egypt traded with babylon and stuff so he knew a lot of these a lot of these stories and, and narratives and stuff and so i think that um you know, whatever his understanding was, he was one of the components of what he was communicating was what you think are these because, OK, number one premise, Yahweh is the one true God and worship him alone. You know, um, um, I am the Lord, your God, worship me alone. There shall be no no other gods before me. OK, so that's the prime. You know, the Shema is the primary definer of Judaism which means everything else is is wrong in a sense, right? Religiously at least, right? And sure. so you have to understand those that a, a lot of Genesis is polemical reactions to what was considered knowledge, you know? Now, um, and, and so, um, so what they're saying is that what you think is received wisdom from the gods is actually demonic and destructive because you're not worshiping Yahweh. Yahweh alone is the source of, of our truth, you know? And so the other component of that would be the, the garden, the snake, I mean, the serpent. And um, now I think in later, there's like, if you look at Gnosticism, Gnosticism is a 
post-Christian. I mean, it was, you know, there was, there was, uh, it was bubbling and boiling in the first century, but it wasn't until like the second century before Gnosticism became a sort of organized religion. Of course, there's always been mystic religions, but Gnosticism in particular says Satan brought wisdom and because God was jealous and Satan's wisdom actually, it was a, uh, what do they call that? A tragic but good thing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it brought, it brought our fall. It brought our punishment from God from the garden, but it was a good thing because we needed that wisdom and God's jealous of it, you know? So that's a post Christian concept, but, but even before, you know, uh, even before the days of, you know, Moses and such, you know, um, in general, there's a, there's a book out called the good and evil serpent by, I'm going to get this. I don't have that. Okay. Let me see if I got serpent in there. Hmm. I don't have it there. So, um, one of the the things that I, I find, I found interesting was you brought in, uh, and discredited within your books, the, uh, Lilith mythology, because I think that that, that plays well into what, we're talking about in some ways it's a it's a twisting of i mean obviously genesis is polemic but that was what it's fighting against is the the type of stories like lilith where it's just a weird pre-feminist feminism yeah and and i i'll by the way your your um uh i was just gonna say your your heavenly court scenes are are fascinating and I love cool. I, my favorite. Well, I mean, I I do think that Rahab is my favorite character outside of Malak Yahweh. So is it is it the Good and Evil Serpent by um, by James H. Charlesworth? That's it. I was looking yeah. for. I thought I had that thing in my PDF files, and I I guess I don't. The Good and Evil Serpent. Because we see we see in a way Jesus's reversal of that through the Bronze Serpent. Yes. So that's kind of the. I think I haven't read the book. But, but but what's good about that book is he does Charlesworth goes into all the ancient notions yeah, of this and it, cool. it's rooted in obviously in um, archaeological so it's it's more of a scholarly study you know than yeah some of these books out there that people put out they're just ridiculous you know oh, they're yeah. just you know researchers you know mm-hmm. which you know I mean I'm in that category too so I, I've got to be careful but I try to everything that I write I try to base it. I try to I footnote, you know, to show that I'm not yeah. I'm not just like freewheeling running around. I'm rooting this stuff in what scholars are arguing. I try to do that, even though I'm not one of them in that sense. Um but yeah, man, so I Charles, love a good footnote. Yeah, I, I I'm a total footnote oh. reader. So that's yeah. why I, I do footnotes in all mine. And uh, yeah, so Charles Worth wrote writes about that. That's where I got a lot of understanding mm-hmm. too about how the ancient serpent was considered often positive. Not always, but because, you know, there's also Leviathan, and Leviathan was a sea serpent, and that was negative. And uh, Apophis in, in Egypt, he was a bad guy. He was the serpent that fought Ra as he's trying to get his boat to go across the heavens of, with the sun. And so, um, you know, so it's, it's sure, surely sometimes negative, but, I mean, the serpent as a, you know, there were serpent cults in Canaan and all this. So yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely there's definitely a polemical element to that for sure, but I tell you, it's the serpent is a is a deep deep one because it goes throughout the whole thing all the way to the end, you know, and uh, yep. seed of the serpent and all that kind of stuff. But 
Yeah. And then what, what else were you asking? Um, one, I was just going to throw in there. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really good by um, John H. Walton is he was talking about the, in the garden of Eden, the, uh, um, the deception, the, this, uh, the choice they made, uh, he had said, you know, he, 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 I'd never thought of this before. He said, he believes that the, the wisdom of that, of that fruit was something God was going to prepare man for and give to him to be a part of him, that wisdom, but by choosing it too early and usurping his role as the decider of what is good and what is evil, sure. um, they, they jumped the gun and that's yeah. why we are where we are. I never thought of it that like why I never thought, Oh, this was a good thing. He didn't just put a bad thing in the, the garden. Oh, yeah. This was a good thing that he was planning on sharing with us, but we weren't ready for And think about it. Isn't that a th common theme throughout the whole Old Testament, right? We were already talking about this, you know, Jacob, instead of, you know, doing it the right way, he grabs for sure. his own way, you know, Goes back to the already, but not yet. Yeah. Jeez. Abraham and, and Sarah. Well, we got to do it. I got to use Hagar. Got to do, got to do God's will my way, you know, so it's a very common, common theme, I think. Absolutely. And so you are trying to pick the peaches before they're ripe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what were you saying about fish people? That was there a question. Oh, the, so that? the fish people thing. No, you know, I, I, I haven't looked anything about the purses and stuff. I know what you're talking about in the Assyrian sure. engravings, but I, I, I haven't looked into that. But uh, the fish wing is just, it's more like a fish suit. Like, and no, I don't think, I don't personally believe in the ancient aliens uh, theory, so I don't think it has anything to do with spacesuits for sure. But, yeah. but be, because the symbolism, I mean, you, you when you sure. study the iconography of Assyrian religion, it's all symbolic. So it's like, why would it, why would it be f literal? Because everything's symbolic there, you know. So um, yeah, I just think that's the, that the ancient aliens thing is just so silly. I never, well, I never actually like. Okay, so for me, ancient aliens was always like the limited hangout version of what it probably was, right? Yeah. Like, I never thought it was a spacesuit. That's like something I use for lack of a better term. Um, oh. Just like it's technology, you know, it's just oh, some oh. way of demonstrating technology. Sure. Because like, or if separation they... or separation, you know, sure. Meaning like um, the priests and the wise ones were separated from the shore. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that, like not much more than that, that I, that I've looked into. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Um, and then let's see, what did I have here? <laughs> also, I wrote your website down, so that's good. <laughs> Gadawa.com. I got it, buddy. Uh, have you ever read the book, Job, A Comedy of Errors? No. It's a Heinlein book. It's a good. great book. It's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, it's really fun. Heinlein? Heinlein, yeah. Um, and... I saw also during the thing when I saw us, I heard us use words and I saw whip look like, what's that word mean? I put it on the bottom of the screen. Yeah, I appreciate that. Exegesis. <laughs> totally appreciated that since, one. Since I wouldn't shut up. <laughs> no, no, no. It was great, though, because I didn't want to interrupt the flow. I was like, oh, I'm just going to sound retarded because I don't know this word. That was great. Um, okay. I'm glad you did that. So this is a war against principalities and powers. Where's that from? Uh, Ephesians. I think Ephesians six twelve six yeah, but then you know the uh, cross references to that. There's a lot of cross references. Let me see if I think I've got them on my fingertips for you that I can throw some out there for you in the New Testament. 
I was going to say, and it's funny the that uh, Psalm 82, it uses, it puts there quotations it around gods in the NIV, which I think is the, like the, it's even worse than what the ESV did. Oh yeah. They changed it to judges. <laughs> oh. <laughs> freaking NIV goes gods. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> Ephesians 3.10 is what the introduction. It goes throughout Ephesians. We're talking about the rulers and authorities and stuff. But that's where it first starts talking about it. Then Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 is when Christ ascends. Um, and then 6, 12 is the wrestle not. And, and that's against the spiritual forces of evil. Then Colossians 2, 15, where he disarms the rulers and authorities. And that's not earthly ones. And then, um, uh, yeah, that's what I got right now. There's more, but I don't have them at my <laughs> fingertips. Well, the reason that one, this is a war against principalities and powers struck a chord with me is that I, um, I do a lot of screen recording for dumb edits and stuff. And Dame, Cam, Dame uh, mentioned an album and it's called uh, Presage. And it's from like 1998. And it talks like a whole bunch of weird conspiracy stuff. But like one track, so like the, re the tracks often start with like a narrator type voice and he says something blah 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 and then they kind of go on from there and one of the tracks starts with him saying this is a war against principalities and powers and oh. i just heard this like just a, a in the last week and i was like oh what i know this phrase <laughs> yeah yeah and now and remember principalities princes uh mm -hmm. daniel 10 prince of persia it's the same thing yeah goes right back to psalm 82 you shall fall like men and die like any prince any prince right well and then there's that that bible verse that says trust not on trust not in men trust not in princes like it's oh yeah. it's 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 all throughout it's yeah. it's it's wonderful when you start to see the thread and you begin to pull it also i will say that when my mom heard of the video game the prince of persia she said i couldn't play it because that was about the <laughs> that that's what I thought. I'm like, oh, did they come up with that cool idea based on Daniel? No, no. <laughs> no, it's just a time traveling guy. All right. So I, I think that that's good. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Thanks for having uh, me, guys. It's been uh, fun. Oh, yeah. Super nice oh, to meet you. Thanks, Send man. me the link when we're on or, or when you've got the link for it. Absolutely. Uh, I was I don't have I won't ask you the big question again since that was like a couple weeks ago. Uh, but I will ask you one uh, unfortunate question, which is, do you believe that a hot dog is a sandwich? No, I don't. I really I, don't. I, take, I don't think of it that way. But, but I mean, is it a sandwich? Rotate the shape in your head, man. What's a sandwich? Technically, yeah. I would I would argue technically it is. I don't think of it as one. Like a sandwich would be like the Italian beef. I'm a Chicago guy. So if you're talking <laughs> hot dogs, real hot dogs would be Chicago hot dogs. And Chicago hot dog places always also have Italian beef. And you do think of the Italian beef as a sandwich, but it's... Technically, you're yeah. You, I think it's a good argument to say that it's a sandwich. Well, a I mean, Chicago hmm. dog is a biblically accurate hot dog. Yes, there are no other hot dogs. Actually. There is no there's, other hot dog. No, That's it's the there only, is only one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so with that, uh, Merry Christmas, Brian. Thank you for Thanks coming so on, and also thank you for your books. I've really enjoyed them. They've, I'm they've... I'm very pleased and and um, honored to hear that. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, well, I I'm gonna keep listening, and and uh, you're going to get occasional like messages. Keep in touch. When I, when I hit places. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, li like he said, you can find all of his stuff at Gadawa.com. Um, he's on Twitter at Brian Gadawa. Most of the stuff that he, he said, most of the stuff he does is on Facebook. So you'll probably see a little bit more 
on his Facebook page. Is there anywhere else they need, I need to point them? Obviously, no. Amazon in the description. Yeah. But yeah, cool. Thank you so much. I Thanks, will, guys. We'll, we'll see you next time. You bet. See you. Till, till next time. Till, till we time. meet again. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. We, we did it. Guys, we did it. Do you have any questions for me, Whip? I literally just meant that by biblically right, biblically accurate, I meant that a Chicago dog was an abomination to look at. Oh, <laughs> you mean it was an old? It's an Old Testament dog. It's just like a thousand <laughs> eyes. Who knows what's in that thing? Oh my lord! Oh my lord! Bless my heart. Uh -huh. Well, yeah. So I, I be, thank you guys for for joining me. Uh, you know I love Pleasure. you both. Um, and been a I, good time. Uh, here's, Good to see you again, Zach. I, I got a yo-yo just to, just to be more like my buddy Zach. <laughs> um, but uh oh, uh oh, oh, we're going around the world. <clears throat> we're gonna walk this dog, baby. So, so while I while I say the rest of this stuff, we're uh, we're gonna let Zach yo-yo. Um, so I'm gonna tell you the the, the last the, the last two shows before so uh, before Christmas. I'll tell you about New Year's. It's just gonna be part two. Uh, but next week we're gonna have Mike Jones. I, I kind of want you to come on, Zach, because I know yeah you yeah you got you got you have ish. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? No, no, no. I, yes, you. Yeah, I heard you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, next week we're having Mike Jones, aka Inspiring Philosophy, on. Um, he is a, an interesting guy on TikTok. Uh, sometimes I agree with him, sometimes I don't. But one of the things that has actually interested, interested me is there are a lot of people, both pagan atheist and Torah observant, you know, the, the unholy trinity, um, who will tell you that uh, celebrating Christmas is evil um, and that you shouldn't do it and it's paganism and all of that. And there are all of these things that people say are facts about how it's actually pagan and almost zero percent of it is true uh he has been waging a fight against a guy named jim staley who made a documentary on it i watched the first 20 minutes of that documentary the other day whip and yeah. i wanted to die because his his understanding of babylonian uh cosmology and um uh all of that was so bad it was like this is not what the enuma leash says shut <laughs> up um but we, he's he's been trying to dismantle that and so uh we're good that's the last uh regular deep show before christmas uh and then we're gonna have our little christmas party uh you're anyone who's been on this show is invited uh any any fans who who want to read something for it and i can play it during the show feel free to do that we're gonna hang out we're gonna celebrate uh and then you know that's it beyond that if you want a christmas shirt mug etc we are the mad ones.com slash Christmas. If you want a regular shirt, it's all, it all goes to the same place. I just made a catchy thing for it to forward to. Um, but I also, I have brand new shirts that I made last night based on this, the imagery of the slain lamb from revelation five, which is some of my favorite energy imagery that no one gets. In fact, I was talking to a friend. I showed him the shirt last night and he, he was like, man, that looks demonic. And I'm like, that's an image of Christ. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, if you go to weirdmadones.com slash store, you can get that. You can get the Cairo. You can get the Binkley Harless 2024 stuff. You can mm. get what's the other thing, uh, the Black Tank, all of the stuff that I make, weirdmadones.com slash store. Uh, if you'd like to support me in any way, uh, one of the best ways you can do that is Patreon. The best way is to subscribe, like, and share 
50 episodes because if we hit certain amount of watch hours, boom, I can make money on this dumb site. But patreon.com slash the mad ones for, for direct link to that. Um, I'm on Twitter at Ham Carlos. Whip is on Twitter at Real Whip Spoon. Zach is now newly on Twitter at The Muted Flag. He's also on TikTok. You finally got me. I blame Cam. It's all your fault. You're going to see the worst. I, br I brought the Hallelujah Hulk into it, and he was like, yes, that's what I want to do. And it was all your fault. And now <laughs> I had to make one because he made one. It is all your fault. <laughs> can't believe you. Anyway. Uh, he's, he's also on TikTok. Um, just search for the muted flag there. The muted flag. Um, if you're YouTube. listening, you can watch weekly live on YouTube at youtube.com slash the mad ones. You could also watch later um, because I, I'm lazy this week on rockfin.com um, and on Rumble, most places if you want to watch. Um, if you would rather listen and not see my face, I understand. Oof. And you can go to weirdthemadones.com and you can listen to it directly there or any podcatcher that you like. Um, that's it. That's all I've got. Anything you, you wonderful gentlemen, gentlemen want to say to the world before I, I hit the buttons. God is good. He is all the time. Yeah, he is. Uh, thank you guys so much. And the rest of you, you have a, cho you have a chance to be a light in the world. So go light it up. <laughs>